This is The Think Tank with Dr. Mike O'Neill talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. The Think Tank. Well, we're at a very, very interesting moment. The presidential election has just been called within a few hours. And there is a normal protocol about this. And I have a couple of guests with us, Chuck Coughlin, who's not only a political consultant, he has worked with elected officials once they're in office. Jack Lunsford has done that, but he has also himself been an elected official. And I I wanted to focus mostly in this show on the protocol of governing the concession speech, the transfer of power, and uh, how that goes and, and how we can govern. We're moving away from kind of the electoral politics side of this to the whole issue of transfer of powers. And I have a really interesting clip to play for you. This is a sequence of, I think, every single clips from every single presidential uh, concession speech dating back to 1960. I believe it starts with Richard Nixon. One of the great features of America is that uh, we have political contests, that they are very hard fought, as this one is hard fought. And once the decision is made, we unite behind the man who is elected. I have no bitterness, no rancor at all. I say to the president, as a, as a fellow politician, that he did a wonderful job. Mr. Nixon has won. The democratic process has worked its will. Hubert Humphrey. So now let's get on with the urgent task of uniting our country. Congratulations on your victory. I hope that in the next four years, you will lead us to a time of peace abroad and justice at home. You have my full support in such efforts. The president asked me to tell you that he telephoned President-elect Carter a short time ago and congratulated him on his victory. The people of the United States have made their choice, and of course I accept that decision. He has won. We are all Americans. He is our president. And we honor him tonight. He will be our president and we'll work with him. This nation faces major challenges ahead and we must work together. There is important work to be done and America must always come first. So we will get behind this new president and wish him, wish him well. I have said repeatedly in this campaign that the president is my opponent, not my enemy. And I wish him well and I pledge my support. This is America. Just as we fight hard when the stakes are high, we close ranks and come together when the contest is done. But in an American election, there are no losers. Because whether or not our candidates are successful, the next morning, we all wake up as Americans. Whatever our differences, we are fellow Americans. And please believe me when I say... No association has ever meant more to me than that. I so wish that I had been able to fulfill your hopes to lead the country in a different direction. But the nation chose another leader. And so Ann and I join with you. 
to earnestly pray for him and for this great nation. We must accept this result and then look to the future. Our constitutional democracy enshrines the peaceful transfer of power. And we don't just respect that. We cherish it. That was a a series of men and one woman who probably were at the edge of the most gut-wrenching moment of their life, where they fought, they gave their all, they lost. In some cases, in at least one case, there was a candidate, Al Gore, who got who knew that he got more votes than the other guy, yet still lost. Uh, Hillary Clinton as well. There's two in the group that were like that. And they were uniformly gracious and they kind of established a norm for what you do uh, when you lose. You, you basically affirm American values of peaceful transfer of power. Jack Lunsford, Chuck Coughlin, are we going to see anything like that this time? No, no, <laughs> no. Unfortunately not. I don't believe that. Uh, you know, it's just not in whatever character that uh, this president has left to be graceful. Um, he, I mean, we've all seen um, that his focus has entirely been upon himself. You know, that's the narrative that's driven his presidency. And so we'll have to figure out, I, I, you know, I believe um, the president-elect will express those wishes. I even think um, come January when he makes his speech, he'll, he'll, he'll draw um, opportunities to draw those other citizens in to, that aren't on his side of the equation here. Um, But that's just one of the things that, uh, you know, one of the most important things that probably lost this guy this election. Now, lack I, of empathy. I, I have a second clip here. We, we had the closest thing to Trump's first statement after he knew he was going to lose. It was so over the top that every network uh, just about interrupt him in the middle and said, we're, these are false statements. We're not going to run them. Rick Santorum reacted to that on CNN. And Rick, you need to understand, is a very conservative guy and has been a very loyal supporter of Donald Trump. What he had to say, I'd like you to hear that. Rick Santorum. Uh, No Republican elected official is going to stand behind that statement. I mean, none of them will. Much of that statement uh, was uh, was not was not factual uh, and was at times incendiary uh, and uh, and not something that president of the United States should say or any elected official. You said unless you have evidence to 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 prove it. And and at this point in time, we don't and we won't until there is a, a, an investigation as to what to happen. And for I, I got to tell you, I sat there and I listened to him talking about the, the votes being taken away from him. And then he shifted to Arizona and said, you know, hey, I can win. I win this thing if they count the votes. Well, how can you how can you say well, we have to wait and count the votes in Arizona and I can win this? Thing <clears> we're making it. But if you count the votes in Philadelphia, you're stealing them. The reality is in, in Pennsylvania, Democrats voted by mail and Republicans voted by uh, in, in person. And it's because you asked them to do so. Uh, and, and so I. I think most people, hopefully, I, I just encourage people to to listen, because I know there's a lot of people who think this election is stolen. A lot of people think there is fraud. And you know what? There may be fraud. There may be all that. We don't know that right now. And for the president to go out there and claim that without any evidence of that is dangerous. And I, I just would say to the president, there may be maybe some validity in some of the things that, that you believe. But to go out there and suggest that this, rest, that this is rigged or that counting votes 
uh, in, in my home state by clerks all over 67 counties and as you kept losing votes was somehow rigged? No. Democrats voted by mail. That's why that's why your lead went away. Had they voted in person, you would be in the same position we are right now. So, again, uh, it's just uh, it's very disappointing uh, well, I, I think, and shocking yeah. at times to hear the president say the things that he said. And I'm hopeful that that Republicans will stand up at this moment and say what needs to be said about the integrity of our election. Be tough. Fight. I want him to fight. I want him to make sure that this election was held fairly. But I don't want him to make to, to draw these conclusions when he doesn't have the evidence to back it up. We will be back after break and we will uh, let you know. How, we will uh, bring on our guests and, and get their reaction to that and suggest what's going to happen now. After we pause for a brief moment of respectful silence for the 45th president of the United States. I'm a loser. I'm a loser. And I'm not what I appear to be. Of all the love I have won or have lost, there is one love I should never have crossed. She was a girl in a million, my friend. I should have known she would win in the end. I'm a loser, and I lost someone who's near to me. I'm a loser. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Okay, we're back with Chuck uh, Coughlin and Jack Lunsford. Jack had a reaction to what we just heard. You might also encapsulate what that was, Rick Santorum reacting to the president's statement the other day. Well, first of all, I think it was a good reaction on his part um, uh, because of all of the claims of the fraud and so on. And and he also acknowledged um, uh, earlier in that in that conversation that Pennsylvania did multiple things, which which sort of created the illusion that the president was leading. What I mean by that is, is that Pennsylvania legislature mandated that the votes count uh, would be those from in person first. In other words, mail-in votes would be the last votes counted. In addition, there was no advance count in Pennsylvania. So all votes were counted on um, uh, election day and hence and that's what created the image. Um, but, you know, I think that the the saddest thing is for a, a sitting president, he's been planting this seed for several months about the potential for fraud and so on. You heard in the earlier clip um, how, how um, presidential candidates uh, uh, accepted the results of the election and conceded, and he doesn't know how to do that. And so 
he's going to go out and, and make accusations for fraud and other things because it's just all about him. I want to ask Chuck uh, about how do you govern, but before you get to the question of how do you govern, you need to know whether or not the Senate is going to be Democratic or Republican. By my count, we're going to have 48 Democrats, 50 Republicans, and two runoffs in January in Georgia. And I've never seen, Chuck, a Democrat win a runoff in the South uh, because, the Demo- to my mind, the Democrats have turnout problems. This may be different. It may be the first $500... million spent on a pair of Senate races in American history. Question number one for you is your political hat. Do the Democrats have a chance in these two Georgia Senate seats? By, like you said, my, by conventional wisdom, no. It's a it's an off cycle, lower turnout affair, uh, which would in the deep south, which would favor Republican candidates. But anything is not conventional about this year. Everybody will know that the balance of authority in the United States Senate is at play here. So ideally, I'd like to own a media outlet in Atlanta, <laughs> which would be selling advertising time. Because then we, you know, we could all be really well off. But you know, all joking aside, we could go uh, in together on that yeah, one. Yeah, right. we should go leverage buyout. One I think that. the sales price might—they figured that out. The sales price might be a bit high, though. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm in too. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, conventionally, not. But uh, you would think that those seats will go. Both of them should go Republican. Uh, but and, and you know, the funny thing is, I had a lot of people. Uh, say to me uh, after the election um, results are posted in the last, even in the run up to it when it was anticipated, you know, if I knew knew the Republicans were going to maintain control of the Senate, I wouldn't have voted for Trump because <laughs> that that's a real thing. That's a real thing with a lot of voters is I want divided government because I want a check and a balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think it, it, but all eyes will be on in, on Georgia in, in January and we'll see how this unfolds. I interject a personal observation. I think the people in America that are happiest about this result is Wall Street. They don't like Trump and his erratic behavior, but they were scared off by the idea of a completely democratic government that might come back and hit them in in terms of taxes. The rest of this discussion will presume the more likely scenario, which is that the uh, Democrats do not capture those two seats. They would need both of them plus Kamala Harris to break a tie. Uh, the odds are, I think we'd agree, that's not going to happen. And uh, I, I think Wall Street is going to be very happy about this. They get somebody who's more of a normal, uh, predictable president and who is going to have severe constraints on his ability to do anything legislatively because Mitch McConnell is in a position to say no to almost any legislation. Chuck, we got about 30 seconds. I I think that's absolutely true. Uh, Wall Street always figures out a way to make money on anything. Um, And so they'll figure out a way to make money on this. And so the the opportunity and what's interesting to talk about, which I guess we'll do in the next segment, is how that 
how that evolves into a governing philosophy for the president and how that will evolve for all of us, which is, I think, fascinating to think about and talk about. That is exactly what we're going to do in the next segment. Uh, We're going to presume that we have uh, President Biden. We're going to have a uh, slightly reduced in size uh, Democratic House, and we're going to have a uh, a very slightly tilting uh, Republican Senate. Probably, the de- in, all, in all probability, the Democrats are going to have one more uh, senator, which, you know, 52-48 is not all that difference from 53-47. But uh, we're going to talk about what governing is going to look like that in that scenario when we return in the Think Tank. The Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We are back with Chuck Coughlin and Jack Lunsford talking about governing in the new age of President Biden and uh, a probable, but not certain, but probable Republican Senate. How do you govern? First of all, the question is how much of a mandate here? Uh, Biden will have 306 electoral votes, and that is interestingly the exact number of electoral votes that Donald Trump got. Uh, he had a brief commentary on the uh, if, what a 300-vote landslide looks like. Take a listen. All sorts of things. Every week it's another excuse. We had a massive landslide victory, as you know, in the Electoral College. I guess the final numbers are now at 306. 306 votes, guys. Do you think that'll get that? Now, uh, we might add the comment. That was his analysis after he uh, got 306 votes and lost by 3 million votes. Uh, Joe Biden gets 306 electoral votes and is going to win probably close to 5 million as the margin. How do you govern uh, in that environment? And uh, uh, this morning, and one interesting observation, Governor Kasich said it's time for the Democrats to start listening to the other half. He's convinced that Biden will do just that. Chuck, yeah, I, 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 what's I'm, governing? Hopeful. I'm hopeful for that. I'm hopeful, given what um, the tenor of a Biden, the Biden campaign and the history of who he has been, uh, is that's what he will do. I was reminded the other day as well that uh, I think those two guys, Mitch McConnell and Biden, have been together in the Senate in the 80s. So, I mean, these are two guys who know one another really well. And I think that bodes well for a cooperative relationship of compromise. Um, You know, I hope we don't go back to, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act era where one side is trying to jam down a policy on the other side that we have and the other side's not having any interest in compromising or, you know, what happened when Boehner was the speaker and he tried to do it and then they threw him under the bus. Um, Obama threw him under the bus. So, you know, I hope there's enough institutional respect here and dialogue. Um, And the interesting thing from our Arizona perspective there will be that our two senators uh, being in the minority in the Senate, presumably, will play an outside outsized role in narrating that, in figuring out what that compromise will be with that the soon-to-be Senator Mark Kelly uh, up for re-election in two years. You know, both of them ran 
as Arizonans, and I've been saying for the last couple of days, it'll be interesting to see how they clothe that mannequin. You know, wh- what does that mean? Wh- I don't know what that means, and, but I'm excited about it. I'm like, put some clothes on that. You know, Bob Robb criticized Kelly for running $35 million campaign and not telling anybody what he believed in. Well, you're going to have an opportunity now. I'm really excited to hear and see. Did you happen to see Kirsten Cinema's congratulatory tweet? I did. Uh, it, w- I did. it was amazing. She he, he she hardly congratulated. She talked about, you know, it was her standard line about, you know, we have to be super moderate and and all that, but it wasn't it wasn't even a congratulations on a great victory. It was it was astounding. Well, our state senior senator enjoys her status as the state senior and, senator. And, and, and I think, interestingly, we are going to, I agree with what you said, we are going to have two of the most conservative Democrats in the Senate, along with the senator from West Virginia. And uh, yeah, that should give them a lot of power. You, are you, you know, Mitch McConnell famously was meeting in the basement of the Capitol when Obama was giving his inauguration uh, address, talking about how we can make Obama a one-term president. Do you think his relationship with uh, with Joe Biden will make this a different environment for governing? Well, I think, quite frankly, I'm I'm not sure Joe's going to run another term, right? So, no, 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 but but still, even like, apart, yes, one-term yes, president I, or I, I believe I believe that personal relationship is going to mean a lot because they're both older men. I don't think they want to go out being reviled uh, by one side or the other. Every politician's ego wants to be loved at the end of their 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 term, although that rarely happens. Uh, so I, I, I'm really interested in seeing how that blossoms into outcome, uh, which I'm excited to see. Well, another a senator in that mix is Kamala Harris. She comes from the club. And, you know, it'll be to your point, Chuck, it'll be interesting. Um, will, will Biden play good cop, bad cop and let Kamala be, you know, the, the play the harder line? Or will he not, uh, because, you know, she may be the heir apparent Democratic candidate right. if, if he decides to go one term. So that'll be an interesting, you know, there's a relationship there. I don't know what her relationship was with McConnell. Um, I don't think it was real good, but I don't know for sure. Um, so all of that's going to be interesting. And then the other thing I was just thinking as you were talking is, now we've got, it appears that Susan Collins gets uh, reelected. She, you know, she's got an interesting makeup in Maine, and she has at times been more centrist. And then Murkowski is sort of an odd one out. So even though the numbers, as Mike explained them earlier, um, in terms of the makeup, uh, you know, we've got some Mavericks floating around here um, with a variety of people. That, I think, will affect the governance as well. What do you guys say? I'm, I'm thinking of the other thing. I say if, if, if major, this doesn't seem to be a recipe for major legislation. It seems a recipe for tiny incrementalism on the legislative side. But I'm thinking of the other side. Uh, you know, Donald Trump has stretched the limits of what you can do by executive order. Do you see him going in there early on and and reversing most of the uh, Trump executive? I'm thinking of the things that we that could be done by executive order: the Paris Climate Accord, the Iran deal, which was not a treaty but it was an executive 
executive deal, uh, the end of uh, pilfering military funds to build a wall, uh, the end of separating kids from their parents as a major as a policy initiative. Seems to me there's an there are a lot of things he could do, and a lot of those would be unquestionably legal because they would be nothing other than reversing existing uh, Trump era executive orders. But when you do that, you take the pressure off the legislative process. I think that has to be done in coordination with McConnell um, Mm -hmm. and have a discussion about this is what I'd like to do on an executive order because these things bother me. What can we get done legislatively? What can we do here um, and talk about that and have a conversation about it? Because that's been the dysfunction of our government right now is the, the reliance on executive authority and the complete abdication of authority by the legislative branch of the government. And I think both as veterans of the legislative process, the two of them understand that. And so they can have a conversation about that, about what the art of the possible is in compromise and see if that, there is something reserving the right to cancel those executive orders and change the policy. But I think the minute he does that, I remember talking to John McCain when uh, we were talking about immigration reform uh, at the end of the um, at, at the end of the oh, 16 um, it must have been the end of the 14 cycle, and he said there's a lot of people talking to John about you know you got to do something legislatively and he and he was just grimaced and he said you know I, you're right but the problem is uh, the president Obama is going to let all the air out of the room because he's going to act by executive order. And the minute he does that, he destroys any opportunity for compromise. And I didn't really understand that at the time. And I, and I said, John, you still got to do this. You still got to try and do something. And Flake was in the room and, and Kyle was in the room. And, you know, he was right. Uh, Obama did the executive order. Um, and then all the steam went out of the legislative process. So you, I would hope he wouldn't do that. So you're saying the way to do it is to reserve the executive order as a strategy you can engage in only if you uh, run into a legislative wall. Don't lead with it. Well, that's, yeah, that's quintessentially the way it ought to be used instead of an abdication of legislative authority. Yeah, I I happen to agree with that. Um, And and to that point, I think that um, he shouldn't do any of those things with you know a, a, a swipe of the pen immediately, just because all they're all out there looming, as you illustrated. But to me, um, what what gives him the time, if you will, to um, have the conversation with McConnell is Biden ran almost solely, especially in the last few months, on uh, COVID, and it, he needs to. Um, uh, uphold his word and address the COVID issue um, before he really tackles all of these other major problems. Um, And so if if he does that, then it also allows him to buy the time to have the conversation that Chuck is talking about. And we've seen some movement on that already. He's put together a task force, which Mm -hmm. is interestingly, and I think appropriately, headed by very high-end medical people, not by politicians. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's gonna he you know if he doesn't focus on his number one issue that he campaigned on, um, 
then he's going to get judged quickly and everybody else down the, the line, the trickle line uh, for other Democrats in particular are, are going to get splashed by that. So he needs to focus on it. Come on, Jack. Everybody knows we're going to have a virus. Uh, we're going to have an antidote any day now. Well, of course, it was, I'm surprised it was supposed to end on November 5th. I'm surprised it didn't. Well, yeah, I'm sure it's right around the corner. All kidding aside on that, even if we get an inoculation, there is no chance it's 100 uh, percent. Right. Right. Best estimates I've seen on that is that uh, at the very best, that inoculation is going to be about as good as wearing a mask, which is right. Pretty good, but not a cure to the whole thing. And it looks like the number one policy. And it'll be interesting. And there'll some folks who won't like it, but national mask mandate, uh, which may not be imposed federal, but you could tie federal funds to that. You know, we're going to give you relief funds for for fighting COVID conditional upon a mask mandate in your state. You know, we will probably see some people marching a street against that. But what we have seen with this is every time you put people put on masks, the, the virus goes down, they take them off, they go back up. And we've seen this over and over and over when, you know, it it it, it, it it's a little harder to follow because there's a two week lag. But when you release, you let people out in the streets two weeks later, you have a breakout. Anyway, we're going to we're going to come back in just a moment for a final segment. But I will leave you this time with a musical clip taken from a concert in the White House. When you hear the concert, you realize it was not one from the last four years. Come gather our people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept that that soon you'll be drenched to the bone if your time to you they better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are achieved writers and critics who prophesize with your pen Keep your eyes wide, the chance will come again. And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spirit. And there's no telling who that it's naming. For the loser now will be later to win. For the times, they are a changing. Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Okay, we're here with Chuck Coughlin and Jack Lunsford. Very quick question. I'll go to you first, Chuck. The state of Arizona, the allegedly conservative, deeply red state of Arizona, just voted for legal grass. They voted for uh, a tax increase across the board, or a big tax increase. They voted to send two Democrats to the United States Senate. They probably voted for Joe Biden, though that's not 100% certain at this time. And they're sending five of nine uh, congressmen are Democrats. is it time to put this red Arizona notion to bed that we are at least purple, if not light blue? We're not Trump red. Uh, I think that's that's clear. 
Um, I think that uh, what they, uh, and we don't know what that, as we were saying earlier in the show, we don't know what that purple means or what that, we certainly, uh, as I've said many times, I don't think we're Pelosi and Schumer blue. So this is a really interesting time. We had, the, the cool thing about this is we had over, you know, 3 million people vote in Arizona for the first time. Um, the really interesting thing, back to your point, Mike, in terms of uh, who we are, uh, is that what normally happens in a presidential cycle is a uh, 7% Republican participation advantage. Our estimate right now is it's a plus, about, it was about a plus 03 Democrat. Um, we'll get done doing the math on that. It's probably about even. I mean, it's within one point of one or the other. Which so is a seven-point shift. Yeah, it's a seven-point shift historically. Mm -hmm. So we are the laboratory of definition for the next four <laughs> years uh, of what, what all these terms mean. And it will be up to legislative leadership, political leadership, the Senate leadership to define that and to put your skin on the line and fight for what you believe in and let that be judged by the electorate. I think it's pretty cool. Um, and it, it, it portends to me of, I mean, maybe I'm Irish, so maybe I shouldn't be this optimistic, but uh, there is optimism in that narrative that uh, we, are going, we are going to see definitional, uh, definitional uh, ideas that will characterize both parties going forward. And I'd be interested to see the post-analysis that'll come. How much of this was Hispanic and how much of this was the suburbs, particularly women in the suburbs? I've got a hunch that it was more of the latter than the former. Well, you know, and here, here we, this is the, we fall into this, this paradigm. And I just, I want to, I want to capture it beyond that. I want to, because we all know there's Hispanic voters that, you know, are pro-life, pro-Second Amendment. Uh, and re there were vigorous Trump voters there. So Deep, there are you know, there's a deeply conservative yeah. strain within the Hispanic community, right. not, not so as deep in Arizona as it is in Florida, where they're Cubans, which are totally different. But, but whenever we get into that definitional stuff, I, I think we lose the grander picture of what we want as Arizonans. And I, I'm really intrigued to see what that what that comes out as. Like, I'm, Mike, you mentioned the 208 thing, the, uh, the the income tax increase uh, for uh, education. It, for instance, there's a perfect opportunity for uh, leadership, Republican leadership, who grieved the issue of this I policy idea. But now we acknowledge that most Arizonans want more funding for education. Is there a better way to do that? Well, we don't have three legs, the three legs, as Jack knows, of public finance in Arizona. We don't have we have income, more. we have sales. Uh, we don't have property. And so is there, it, it, I believe there's an income tax, there's a tax reform opportunity here to put public education on a much better footing going forward and to make our state tax code much more fair. Because this wasn't fair. The, the 208's not fair. You shouldn't no. put well, the burden of a community obligation on one segment of the economy. Many saw that as a redress of a grossly regressive tax system. Right. Well, fix both. I mean, yes, you can fix indeed. both right now. And now, how, can you do, do that, that without a constitutional amendment to because yeah. uh, because we, we require two thirds vote for any tax increase? Oh, you put it, it on the ballot. You yeah, put it, on, put the it ballot. on the ballot. Yeah. Absolutely. Have the legislature okay. put it on the ballot. Have it characterize the 2022 gubernatorial election. Mm -hmm. Who's for it? Who's against it? Create a discussion. 
right. about that. I think that'd be fascinating to see if we, we could pull something like that off. Okay, Jack, we got a minute. I want to give it to you. Well, I'm, you know, I'm looking at uh, the legislature because that's that's right now my world, and and um, I, I, I've got a couple of thoughts. One is we're going to be back at, at probably 3129 Republican leadership in the House. And, uh, there probably is one switch uh, in the Senate, so it might be 1614 Republican leadership. Um, uh, I, I don't think that they ought to look at it as a mandate, uh, to Chuck's point. I think they need to uh, be creative. They need to look at other sides. I'm going to be interested to see how the House Democrats uh, play because they've been obstinate about almost everything in the last uh, session uh, and, 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 you know, creating uh, um, obstacles everywhere to passing uh, public policy. So um, I, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch. And okay, that... I got to cut you off. Time's yeah. up. Yeah. Time's up. We'll be back next week. By the way, if you want to catch this show in podcast, it's KTAR.com. I'm at uh, MikeO'Neill.org. Have a lot of the older and best shows archived there. We'll see you next week in the Think Tank. Thanks.